Welcome to Being Human. It gives me great pleasure to be here today in your house, Alan. Um, and Carrie Beddingfield, who has been a guest on the show, introduced us uh, and said you should check out Alan's book. Uh, I read the book, the design, and, uh, and now we're here talking uh, in your beautiful house. Thank you. Uh, here in the countryside in Cam Cambridgeshire. Um, so let, let's start with the book. Mm -hmm. um, sort of the main message of the book and then as we were talking before we came on air here there's a bit of a backstory to how that book emerged so yeah let's start with the, the main message of the book and go from there. Well the main message of the book is well the full title is Do Design Why Beauty is Key to Everything um, and I wrote that book based on really my lifetime's practices um, you know as a artist as a craftsman as a maker as a businessman um, as an advisor to businesses where I form this view that we need the philosophy and lens of beauty as a frame for life and a frame for everything that we do um, and it wasn't just about aesthetics in any way shape or form but something much more fundamental to the quality of the life that we can lead as individuals but also actually then to the quality of the products and services and businesses that we could create as a consequence of that. Design is the application, so beauty is the lens, design is the application, and in a sense really that's what that book was really wanting to, uh, to address. Right, and okay, so and, and how did you come at, okay, so, so why, why, why feel the need to put that down in the book, and, and where did that set of ideas come from you know what's the context of that so um, a number of years ago I had uh, a massive nervous breakdown um, emotionally physically psychologically I mean that started in probably around 2005 and it probably took me about you know 10 years to kind of climb out of that um, equally I think that um, being a very creatively driven person so I would say I respond to all the challenges that I've been asked to um, you know be engaged with whether that's designing a book or whether that's designing a business is you respond to um, what you're looking at creatively and what I felt was is that business in a sense had become rather ugly um, its purpose uh, which certainly wasn't purpose before profit, it was profit at all and any costs. And the costs to human nature, the cost to our human nature, mm -hmm. the costs to um, the world that we were living in, seemed to be becoming at a very high price. So somebody was making money, but actually to, to, to what end? And that caused for me a huge crisis of feeling my values really being kind of trampled on. Um, I was getting off and on an aeroplane for about 150 times a year and I did that for about you know four or five years and in a way that was a kind of the genesis of, of what happened which was uh, for me a, you know as I say a massive nervous breakdown um, and so when people say to me um, I'm in a bad place or I'm in an ugly place or I'm in a dark place I understand fundamentally how hard how dark and how relenting that experience can be so in a sense, I think that the writing of the book was about writing myself home. Okay. Um, how do I get home? How do I get to this place um, where I feel that 
I'm on a road and a pathway that is going to make sense to me. Um, and I suppose in a way I was really thinking about what is my core purpose? What is it I really want to do? And there are two memories that I've got which kind of you know, led me to the word beauty. Uh, one was as actually being a small boy uh, on holiday uh, in Cornwall with my family. Uh, the sun was blue, the air was pure and clean. I was playing on the beach with my toys, with my brother, with my sister. You know, my father was there, my mum was there. You know, she was relaxed and she was happy. And so actually I was at one with myself, I was at one with my family, and I was at one with the world around me. And that seemed to me to be a very beautiful experience that kind of held me. You know, it's a good place to be. And the other one was a few years later, I was still quite young, um, but my mum and dad came from, uh, from London. We at the time you know, lived in Letchworth, but they would take us to London quite often because the museums were free. You could then spend a day in a museum if it was raining or whatever, and it'd be entertainment for the kids. I think I enjoyed it much more than my other two siblings, but, but I remember being in the National Gallery. I remember looking at a very large religious painting from, I think, probably the medieval period huge gold baroque frame uh, this wonderful kind of religious you know scene and there was i think a man or a woman in a blue cloak and i just remember going home thinking about how amazing that was now i never shared that story with anybody at all i certainly wasn't sitting in the car saying to my mum and dad you know that blue cloak on that man's that was that was pretty amazing wasn't it i mean i didn't have the language or the vocabulary but the experience was a visceral one. And in a sense, that then connected to this idea of design and that actually everything man-made in this world is designed. You know, there's a point where that painting didn't exist. The painter, whoever it was, you know, then envisaged that scene. How was he going to put it together? You know, the component parts. And in a sense, therefore, that connection between design and beauty were very kind of important to me. Um, so as I said, you know, beauty is the lens, it's the philosophy, and design then is the application. But to me, design is absolutely everything that, that we do. Um, and I suppose in a way that what I found really distressing when I was working for some you know, very big organisations you know, back in the early 2000s was actually, in a sense, how myopic uh, and siloed they were to the worlds that they were working in. Um, their approach to risk management, uh, to the point where I would say, well, the reality is, is the way that you're approaching this is you're spending huge amounts of money to mitigate risk, but actually what you're doing is you're taking the biggest risk of all. You're not taking a chance. You know, and then it kind of connected me back to the idea of learning through practice, through failure, and back to my experience of being, you know, an artist, um, you know, a photographer, uh, you know, a maker. You don't just sit down to a piano and play Rachmaninoff's Concerto Number no. Three like that. It takes a lot of hard work. Mm. It takes a lot of repetition. It takes a lot of practice. And to me, there seemed to be something really uh, broken in the system of, you know, innovation, shall we say, um, in the way that. I was currently being asked to, to work um, with it and on it. Right, okay. 
I'm getting a picture now of you as a, as a child, and I was just contrasting to myself getting dragged around galleries and like <laughs> hating it, but obviously you... I loved it. You, you loved it, and you connected with that art even at a young age and were able to appreciate it level. Yeah, I'm sure most kids, or certainly it sounds like your siblings didn't. Yeah, well, you know, as I say, I mean, I worked as, you know, I've worked as, a, as an artist, as a printmaker, photographer, drawer, mm. so obviously the visual world was very important to mm. me. And so obviously it was something that spoke, that spoke to me. Um, very, very directly, there was a clear connection. There. Right. So, if that was there all, all, all along, and that's obviously sounds like that's been a thread. How did the so the breakdown in two thousand and five? What did you feel like you'd sort of lost connection? Yeah. Just, just talk me through how that played into this. I think that um, so one of the things that I would I would say is is that uh, you know you you become or I became very angry with myself. So what I saw was is that I'd failed. You know, there'd been a number of projects I'd worked on, very big projects, you know, um, some up to the value of a, a billion euros that I'd been involved in, right? So back to back, five years working incredibly long hours, uh, working with huge teams of people. But each and every one, as far as I was concerned, ended in some form of unmitigated disaster and I looked at that and I thought there's only one common thread in all of these projects and that's me so I must be the one that's not good enough I must be the one that's the failure I've not been able to deliver and the thing is is that I set myself incredibly high standards um, and if I didn't meet those standards then I found that very difficult to accept um, and so what you do is you take all of that creative energy and you turn it in on yourself, and that is incredibly destructive. Right. Um, but of course, no one's there to tell you that. Um, there's no one there um, that's just is saying, actually, I think you're having a nervous breakdown. And so I've got some really strong opinions, actually, about mental health in terms of how it's supported and looked after, because I think that I was fortunate in some respects in you know, the people that, that were around me in the circumstances I was in, but I think that um, there just isn't the level of support that is, you know, required. And then in a sense, although obviously some of that was my own in personal interpretation of the experiences I went through, um, it was also a result of working maybe in, in a very dysfunctional environment um, where, you know, winning and making business at all in any costs until it costs you everything right. was a lesson that I think you know I learned so that was a very hard journey and path to go on in learning to forgive myself learning to forgive others being able to let go of things um, you know and we were talking earlier about this connection for me between beauty and suffering um, and, you know, I've got this phrase, which is, you know, you can't have Luke Skywalker without Darth Vader. Um, but the reality is, is actually as a human being, that you have to see the, both the great joy and the great sadness that will happen in your lives actually are all part of the great beauty. And it's about how you reconcile those things is the way that it allows you to, I think, become the human being that you need to be. In, in the true whole, because you can't be one without the other. And it's an insight that I've really thought about a great deal, partly because of my own journey, 
Um, and I think that there's a healing in that, which is something I've learnt about and become aware of. And perhaps in a way, you know, the, why the beauty is key to everything then is also part of a way of saying there's a way of actually acting and being, making in the world that could be more restorative and could be more healing. And looking at the world through that lens might not be such a bad thing for more people. And then certainly, I think, from the response I've had from the book, uh, from a whole range of different people, it certainly seems to touch people. And that was something that was very unexpected uh, for me. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly a different way of talking about business. That's what really struck me, was it's a different language. I mean, we were talking before the point, it's a different language. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a different focus. And I, certainly I've been in those situations of, uh, of, of working on things that feel like they're meaningless or feel like they're valueless and feeling like, and, and almost seeing them heading towards disaster, but feeling mm. like there's nothing you can, you can do. And so, so I can certainly relate to that sense of, of being in a, in a sort of stuck place. That was, that was how, it, how it's felt for me at periods in my career where you just, you just, you just, you're just sort of marching towards meaninglessness without, without uh, a way out. Yeah. Um, and, and so you, you, so you'd moved from being a creative to managing and managing big projects. Is that, yeah. is that what you're talking about yeah. when you had, when you, when you had the crash and mm. then, and then how did you climb back? You know, how did that, how did that transition happen? You, after the breakdown, I'm just interested in in how you moved back into business after that. I mean, did you have a long period off, or what? what happened? Well, I took I took a year off, um, and I just decided I was no longer going to try and talk to businesses um, that really didn't want to speak with me um, or listen or engage. I, I, I it just didn't make sense. And then one day I got a phone call and um, a company asked me to go and give a keynote speech. Um, and at, at that point, I'd not really done a great deal of talking. Um, and so, you know, a few months later, I find myself on a stage in front of two and a half thousand people, which was pretty nerve wracking. Um, but that's kind of what happened. I ended up sort of being picked up as a speaker. So I traveled the world uh, talking about um, innovation, disruption, um, technology, design, beauty, um, and um, and then worked a lot with startup companies as well because the conversation you would have in in those organisations or companies that were, say, in a period of high growth, they really wanted to have the conversation of how we're going to get this done, rather than why we can't. Uh, and and also then it gave me space and time to write and to think um, and then start to really think about you know what would be my my true purpose or mission if I was to actually just engage um, on that basis uh, so I slowed right down or as my friend says you know you slow down to speed up um, and really thought about, you know, my well-being and my welfare. Um, but equally, what types of, uh, you know, businesses 
I would want to work with and how I would want to work with them and um, and in a way all of that that process was the gestation to writing do design and thinking about this key theme about beauty and you said something very interesting um, about this thing about meaning uh, human beings are meaning making creatures you know we we function through belief um, ideas philosophies ideologies religions um, and actually if we're being tasked or asked to bring our heart and our hand and our minds to something without it having meaning at the central core of it that's incredibly destructive for people is is what i is what i, I see and um that's where I think we're in this process at the moment of we've got an extreme of certain businesses which are you know driven you know to want to achieve profit at any cost and then you ask the question well who's that actually for um, but equally on the other hand I think there are a whole host of businesses and people purpose-driven leading those businesses which are actually beacons to people that say there's another way that we can bring businesses into the world that actually, you know, whether you're looking at, um, you know, a supply chain, um, you know, from end to end, um, whether that's trainers or coffee or um, jeans or, you know, solar power or, you know, whatever, there is a way that we can really deliver great value and great experiences for our customers because ultimately that's really important to do yeah. um, because common sense tells you then that people come back for more if they've had a really good experience. I mean, it's just common sense. But equally, there's a way in which the business model can work, the cultures can work, where actually there's a form of generosity um, that goes with the way that those businesses behave and a set of values. Um, and I remember I, I interviewed a, a lady called Fiona Reynolds. Um, so she wrote this book called The Fight for Beauty. She was Director General for the National Trust for many years. So she's now Master at Emmanuel College here at the University of Cambridge. And then National Trust for People Internationally, that's a sort of organisation in the UK that looks after a lot of our nat natural heritage. Right? Absolutely. And a lot of our that's right. historic buildings. And at the end of our conversation, I said to her, um, Fiona, what gives you hope? And she said, well, actually, it's the kids that come into here that give me hope. And she said, these, are, these millennials, you know, they won't have a job for life. They probably won't ever be able to afford to buy a house currently. They won't have a pension, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we've actually left the planet for them in a much worse state than it currently, you know, when, than when we inherited mm. it. She said, but they come with a different set of values and they come with a different understanding of what their role is in this world and their mindset and they're mindful of this is the way they're going to work. So again, you know, we've, we've got, I think, something very interesting going on at the moment. Um, and also, I think my reflection is, is there's a, there's a, this idea about beauty in terms of the people that I've spoken to, um, either at conferences or, you know, uh, in conversation, if people really believe that you're turning up to talk about beauty, 
seriously talk about beauty. They, every human being on this planet understands that beauty plays a fundamental part in their, in their lives. Um, because they know that actually that's about a life that is meaningful, a life that is worthwhile, um, a life that is joyful, um, could create some pain, but also a life that is fulfilling. And there's a great quote by a guy called Frank Vilcek who wrote this book called The Most Beautiful Question. And this most beautiful question is, is the world a work of art? Um, and Frank says, once you've tasted beauty at the heart of the universe, you hunger for more. And I think we're hungry for beauty. Um, because I think we've all had enough of ugly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can see that. And I, it, it just you've just made the connection there in my mind between meaningfulness and, and beauty. Hmm. And yeah, I can I can really sense that when I felt like this is just and so many times I've been in sort of corporate situations where I felt like I'm serving some corporate sort of bureaucratic machine and there's no meaning to what I'm doing, there's no value to it. It's, yeah. of course of course it's it's at some level you could say it's ugly. This is ugly work. I can imagine myself. Yeah, so I mean you, you know, if you were talking about that, I, I would say creating beauty is the hardest thing you can do. But actually it's beauty that gives things their immortality. It's beauty that makes things endure. Um, and I think that ugly is, you know, is the shorthand to the quick answer for the quick fix that actually a few years down the road is going to come and be devastating for you, your people and your business. You know, and the last thing you want to see, the last thing I want to see is businesses that ultimately lose their sense of purpose but actually then it means that they're not running their business on on a values-based way of making decisions so you know if you were to say you know you're in a board meeting and okay the company's under a lot of pressure you know it, it needs to make decisions um, someone's proposing something that could be a quick fix but what if someone said but is that the most beautiful decision we could make <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing because it's so incredulous that someone might ask that, you know, in, in normal day-to-day -day business. But the values that come with that as a question. So when we ran Symposia last year throughout Europe, so I, ran, I invited all sorts of businesses to come together, um, and the invitational question was, is what does it mean to be a beautiful business? Um, and one of the questions, it's a very simple question, is what is the language of a beautiful business? And we asked teams of people to come together and, you know, work through that. And of course, what's interesting is, is people start to understand that the language that they use around things fundamentally changes the way they see the world and then how they act in the world as a consequence of that. Mm. And it's just self-revealing. Um, and... The question then is, so if you were to use, so what is the language that you use in your business today? Work on that for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Okay. How does that language relate to the language of beauty that you've just explored? And what would you bring in? And how would that change the way you would then make decisions? How would that change the way you think about your business model? How does that change the way you think about your purpose? How does that change the way you think about legacy? 
how does that change the way you think about the culture that you're creating inside your organisations? Right. Now, doesn't that feel a much more worthwhile way to get out of bed on a Monday morning than it's profit at all costs and we have to meet the quarterly numbers? You know, we're, you know, we're, uh, I always remember a marketing guy saying, you know, the, uh, you know, the quarterly numbers is harvesting, you know, cash flow for profit or something. Um, but it's actually not about looking at the world in terms of something much more in, enduring. Right. And that's one of your practices, isn't it, in the book? You talk about paying attention to language and yes. specifically in relation to beauty. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so the other thing that struck me when you were talking earlier about taking your year off after the breakdown is if, if there are people listening who... I think you used the term having your values trampled, something like that. Mm. If they're in that place where they're like, God, I feel like I'm on some treadmill, you know, yep. I can sense I may be heading towards depression if they've, if, if they've got that sense. How did you climb out of that, right? How did, or, or how, what allowed you to get out, recover, come back? You know, is there anything you'd pass on? <laughs> well, first, first and foremost, I think you've really got to go and talk to somebody. As I say, you know, when it happened to me, um, there really wasn't the provision in the National Health Service to, to really help me in the way that I needed. Um, I mean, I, you know, like a friend of mine or friends, you know, sometimes being medicated is not a bad idea. You know, you, if, you're, if you're in a state where, you know, you're overwhelmed by suicidal thoughts, um, which can happen because actually the distress that you're under is so acute that all you want is relief from the pain, and it's just relentless. So I think you know, you've know you got to go and talk to um, a doctor, um, talk to your family and friends. You know, It's interesting, I was just grazing through Grayson Perry's book, The Descent of Man, um, just before we, we met, which I think is a wonderful book. But he says, uh, in this line actually, he says, Today, you know, men are almost the consumers of, of manhood, in a sense. Um, and it's something that, I think there's some, there's some truth in that. I think he, he writes some really wise words, but that idea about the man being strong, that you can't break down. And I suppose for me also is, I knew, I sensed I was going over one red line, and then another red line, and then another red line. I just knew that I was going over these red lines. But it's like, if I put my hands up and went, I'm sorry, but I need a time out, um, because this is how I'm feeling, that was a form of weakness. But of course, the reality is, is um, what you tend to do then is, particularly if you're in that state, is you think you're trying to hide it all, but actually what you're doing is you're causing everyone around you huge amounts of suffering. Mm. Um, you know, your partner, your husband, your wife, your children, because all they can see is someone in great pain. Mm. And actually what they can't imagine is, is the person you hate the most is you. Mm. Because their natural interpretation is, is it must be me. Um, I think that uh, to step away from that that causes you great pain, even if it feels like you're really putting your life in jeopardy, is the most important thing you can do. And what you've, what you've done is, is you've got you know, the pyramid the wrong way around, which is actually you're at the bottom and everything else is on top and you can't sustain that. And you've got to turn it the other way around. 
um, and think, well, I need to move away from from this. Um, maybe you need to uh, get a counsellor or counsellors. Um, there's a lot more awareness, awareness today than there, there was. But um, I definitely think that don't be scared uh, to say that um, this is happening to me or this is how I feel. Yeah. And I think from a, I was speaking to somebody who'd worked in a, a large travel company, actually. Was it? No, it's a, he, he originally worked at a travel company and then worked at a large security company and they'd introduced this um, Tuesday, tea on Tuesdays, where you could just have a chat. So in the organisation, anybody could come into this space. There were some people who'd been trained by Mind, which is a mental health charity in the UK, to just have simple counselling conversations. So these were staff in the business. Just to come and have a cup of tea and have a chat, and tell so so it provi provided this outlet within the business. Mm. Um, so I think you're right that there is this emergence of how do we nurture each other's mental health to a greater degree inside the business. I mean, I think what you said is relevant in terms of speaking to people outside, but even even within, I think that's starting to shift now, isn't it? That we're we're recognising it inside the business. Yeah, I think that's right, and I, and I think that. Um but a lot, I think I think what what CEOs need to understand, or, or senior business people, is is that it's the culture in which they ask people to work in that can actually be so devastating to their mental health. Now it may right. well be that you're, you know, you're walking, you know, you're already carrying that with you. I mean, there's, you know, it's a very complex. The human, the human interior, mm. um, is is a very com complex landscape. Um, but I definitely think that um, we really need to think about nurturing workplace environments. So for me, beauty in that sense is is very critical. And um, you know, we're all vulnerable as human beings. You know, um, we aren't strong men and strong women in that sense. But it's almost like, and you will know this for a fact, that it's almost like when you walked in the door of the business. Is somehow you had to be some kind of warrior or a, you know a, a machine, and you know um, boys weren't allowed to cry. People weren't to say they were feeling, you know, um, unhappy about something. It was all about manning up, and which is a word and term I really despise. Um, whereas if you think about, um, it's a crazy example, but someone I use as, as an example, but Olaf or Eliasson is this. Uh, you know, Icelandic artist, uh, famous, most famous for his work of the uh, weather project, which was in the turbine hall, which bathed the whole of the turbine hall in the Tate Modern in this incredible warm red glow. Which uh, for people listening, that's a big museum in London. That's in right. UK, yeah. um, and it had, I think, the highest uh, recorded number of visitors ever. So number of things. One is, if you create a beautiful experience for people, they will come. Um, and what's interesting, though, to, the, to back to the, the story about culture and nurturing environments is he has a studio uh, in Berlin where he has a staff of 90 people. Um, you know, big art is serious art, is big money. He's got these people working for him. But the important thing is, is that every day he cooks a veg vegetarian meal for his 90 staff. Um, but the kitchen... Bearing in mind that Olafur is this A-list uh, artist, 
it's not down a basement or back of a hallway, it takes centre place in the studio. And he says cooking is generosity. It's about respecting people's dignity. And when we come together and people share and talk, actually, you know, this is the stuff that makes the glue. Of course, the cliche is breaking bread, and we're yeah, breaking bread, and you know, there's some sandwiches over there. No, this is a very different thing right. in terms of the commitment, in terms of your staff and well-being. And it may well be that, you know, obviously people may be listening to this thinking, well, yeah, but the robots and the car, and it's going to be automation and AI. But the reality is human beings aren't going anywhere. And it doesn't matter what environment we create. You know, we only really move together um, at scale when we collaborate and we create things. So surely the thing you want to do is ensure that you've created the most nurturing you know, environment for your staff. That's not to say quality is unimportant. That's not to say that you know, competition is unimportant. That's not to say these things aren't important to what it is you're creating. Um, but I definitely believe that uh, a lot of people suffer in workplace environments because actually the culture is actually very toxic and destructive to them. Right. Reminds me a bit of uh, Shashin Shah who we had on that said He has a, uh, a meditation moment. Uh, so classical music plays every hour for two minutes and he invites the entire company to meditate together fantastic for, for two minutes so and, and funny enough they don't they don't have a kitchen in the middle of their uh, of their workplace but they do have vegetarian food brought in you know mm. home-cooked vegetarian which they all share uh, each lunchtime so yeah I think this is a, an emerging pattern isn't it of a sort of reconnection to humanity in the in the workplace yeah the connected yeah and exactly and you know we are in some respects um it's very important as human beings. I mean, it's that uh, uh, in the book I talk about, you know, Ali's, Ali's, Muhammad Ali is being interviewed uh, by Michael Parkinson. And, uh, and I remember this as such a small child. And he says to Ali, you know, Ali, you know, you write poetry. And Ali says, yes, I do. And he says, so what's your shortest poem? And he just looks at Parky and he says, me, we. And the, the, to the point that you're making is this idea about being seen. Um, and it was Carl Jung that wrote this line, which is, I need we to truly be I. Mm. So the we sees the I, the I sees the we. Um, and this is a fundamental part of then human beings in terms of identity. Um, you're seen, you're heard, you're listened to, um, is kind of key to this. Um, the idea of listening is also coming back into the, I think, sort of the mainstream, um, touching the edges that perhaps actually this idea of really giving someone your full attention, um, really being present, actually enables people to feel much safer. Meaning is made, connections are made, deeper connections are made. And a lot of that's also to do with trust. So if you if you want your, your workforce, you know, whether it's five people or 90 people or you know, whether it's 20,000 people to come and give their A game for you uh, on an enduring basis, then the ones that create, as far as I'm concerned, the culture of trust are the ones that will endure and be more successful than the ones that don't. And of course you can drive a slave ship and you, know, you can lash people. Um, we've done it through the ages. 
Um, we just have digital versions of that today. Right, but it'll get you so far for so long. It'll get you for so far for so long, and then it, eventually something will happen, and it will be catastrophic. Um, and also, I think that why would you want to do it any other way? I mean, common sense just tells me why would you want to do it any other way? I, d I don't understand why... I don't know, cruelty as a form of management. Um, although obviously there's a lot of it out there at the moment, whether it's, you know, Me Too or, um, you know, whistleblowers. And uh, we keep, you know, seeing business leaders that have grossly abused their, their you know, their, their power. Um, although then that sort of takes me to Shakespeare's famous line, which is, you know, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Um, and so maybe therein lies lies the answer. Um, but also, I think that you can lay the blame at the door of teaching business in a way that business is warfare. It's about aggression, domination. Um, the, the only you know, the only successful win is when you crush your opponent. Right. Um, you know, without mercy. Um, I kind of get it. Um, and it is part of who we are as human beings, right? There's, the, there's a part of all of us who perhaps enjoys domination, who, that enjoys power. That, there's, that, there's, that, there's that shadow perhaps of all of us. And it's, it's just a... So, so perhaps it's inevitable that businesses will, will emerge where that's the dominant value set. But of and led by people for whom that's most important. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're, it's, it, like, it's like ugly businesses will, yes. will always happen, or will they? I mean, well, I mean, in a sense, then this is a you know this is a huge you know a debate to have or to think about. In a sense, also, there's another way of looking at it, which is the system that we have created is such that it creates an inevitability that businesses have come out. Or evolved and developed in in that way, but quite clearly, um, and and we live in an economic environment. You know, the popular term is neoliberalism, um, which is a system which requires businesses to, you know, to grow and grow uh, relentlessly. You know, which is which is crazy because if you look at the natural world and we're part of it. You know, if, if, if growth for growth's sake was our purpose, we'd all be 60 feet tall, you know. Um, we'd all be like the BFG, you know. Uh, Big friendly pretty giant. giant. From the Royal um, that's right. Yeah. But we're not. Um, and so there's a, there's a design fault in the, in, the, in the system. And then in some respects, um, you know, I could see even in the late, you know, 2000s so of, around about 2009 that we were moving towards what I call the adaptive edge of our industrial society and the by pursuit of business in the way that we were we were we were pursuing it um, we were going to have um, this real kind of reckoning which would be of a social economic uh, and organizational um, you know breakdown in a, in a sense um, and I think we're we're there uh, if you look at the world that we're 
we're in. And in, in some respects, actually, you know, we've just had the Brazilian president elected uh, yesterday, um, who also sees himself as a strong man, um, where actually people aren't able to deal with the complexities of the world that they're looking at today. Um, climate change, climate change has impacts on, you know, social migration, war combined with, with that. Um, with actually businesses not being able to deal with um, the level of digital deployment within their own industries because they've not really been looking at it when they should have been, uh, which are now trying to keep up, still trying to keep their quarterly numbers. Um, and you can just see all of that kind of just, you know, there's a big stressing going on. And of course, human beings are caught in all of that which is causing people a great deal of pain and suffering as well. Yeah. And I suppose in a way then, I, I suppose that the, as much as the original motivation in terms of what I really drew on to write about beauty and design, you know, was, was a lot to do with my personal experience. Um, I could equally see that maybe we needed a different language and a different lens to bring to the world, um, and one that would take us beyond also the language of sustainability. Um, somebody once actually asked me, he was a, as a lawyer, uh, worked for a big firm in, in, in London, and he was interested in sustainability, and he sat there with his arms folded, and he went, so what has beauty got to give the world sustainability? And I looked at him, and I said, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a musician, you know, I, I, I play guitar, and I can play what is called a sustaining note but I can't sustain that note forever. So, so the language of sustainability sounds to me like we're hanging on by our fingernails. It also sounds a bit moral and a bit dry and a bit puritanical. And I said, now look, I'm a fully signed up member to you know, the sustainability movement. I understand it, I get it. I said, but how do you open the door? How do you make that a wide door? And how do you put the drawbridge down for people that don't believe in that stuff? I said, whereas beauty for me is about a life which is fertile. You know, beauty gets more beauty. Beauty brings fertility into the world. It brings a more enriching life into the world, a more fulfilling life into the world, you know, and we should be allowed to have fun. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, yeah, there's nothing wrong with smiling. There's nothing wrong with dancing. You know, there's nothing wrong with those things because that makes us what we are as human beings as well. Um, and in that sense, I think that's where the role of beauty and the language of beauty has, in terms of maybe your, your, your word, reconnecting people to their fundamental human nature. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, I know there are certain people in the world that are excited about the possibility that we will be robots as soon as we possibly can. I know that. Um, you know, I've got some dodgy knees, so I'd actually, I quite, I quite like some bionic knees, I have to say. But, but actually, we are really connected to the natural world. You know, in the, in the book, I talk about Edgar Mitchell, this astronaut, where he, he talks about the fact of this epiphany he has in the, in the spaceship. And he, he says, you know, he's looking out the window and he sees the sun, the moon and the earth hanging in the vast and endless void. And he says, I suddenly realised that the molecules in my body, the molecules in the spacesuit, the molecules in the spaceship, 
and in my colleagues' bodies were all forged in an ancient star. We are all stardust. You know, atomically, molecularly, we are all made from the same stuff. We're just reorganised differently. And so that, that reconnecting, I think, to our humanness, uh, as much as some people might see that as being vulnerable and weak, um, actually is the bit that makes us who we are and helps us thrive and survive in whatever it is we do. So, you know, back to business. If you can create businesses that really help us reconnect to our human nature, um, if we can create things which are, you know, restorative in um, all of what we are and do, then actually we're taking lessons from the greatest teacher we have, which is, which is nature. Um, I've got nothing against robotics and AI, and I can see, uh, you know, in certain instances um, where they play a really important role in, in augmenting uh, us in, in what it is we do. There are some tasks that we shouldn't be doing as human beings. Maybe there's you know, something more enriching that we could be doing. So I'm not anti that at all. But I think that's the design element of it, is how do you bring all of those things together to make something work really as a, as a, as a beautiful business? Yeah, and, so, and I'm thinking, so for me what's coming up here is this idea that it's, it's okay to objectify the natural world in a sense. It's okay to take our humanity out of it in order to understand something about nature and how we can manipulate it and so on. But we must never lose that part of us that uh, enables us to see beauty, that enables us to connect to other human beings and pull these two things together. It's a bit like with Steve Jobs, you know, we, we, we want to combine the liberal arts and, and engineering, right? Yeah. And, and create some synthesis of these two ways of looking at, at the world, yeah. um, looking at our role as in business. Yeah, and I think that um, there's also something in, in that, which is this relationship between truth and beauty. So, again, if you're just talking to almost anybody um, where you talk about this relationship between truth and beauty, they understand there is something really important in that connection. There is truth in beauty and there is beauty in truth. If we seek the truth and the beauty in the businesses that we create, although that sounds quite poetic, actually the true purpose of the poet is to excavate and discover the universal truth in whatever it is that they're, they're writing about. And I see that as something really interesting um, and uh, potent in terms of saying, well, if we're going to create this product or we're going to create this service, what is its truth? What is its beauty? Uh, and of course, in a sense, you know, the person with the XLS sheet, KPI kind of checks out and saying, well, you know, that's dumb. Well, I, you know, well, you, but the reality is I know and people know that this is true. And also in, in terms of our conduct with each other, you know, if I'm if I'm trying to behave in a more beautiful way, if I'm trying to be more truthful, and to combine those things, there's an elegance that comes out of that interaction and that engagement than in if we were to ignore those. Um, right. 
So it's seeking that deeper truth that we all kind of know is there, doesn't live in the spreadsheets, but somehow we understand and we can connect. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, a practical example of that um, in some respects also, because it relates to purpose, which is, um, you know, I talk about this guy called Doug Engelbert and Doug Engelbert was the guy that invented the mouse. And a few years ago, you know, he, he died. And of course, the tech press, you know, uh, the sort of headlines were inventor of the mouse dies as though somehow Doug woke up one morning and, I don't know, he just invented the mouse. I mean, I don't know. And hey, presto, you know, everyone was using one. Um, but he also invented some other things. He invented hypertext and he also invented video conferencing. But what the press didn't talk about was why Doug invented those things. Doug believed that if he could create technologies that would allow humanity to connect over time and space to share knowledge and information, we might collectively, as a species, be able to solve some of the world's most pressing problems. So there was truth and beauty, both in terms of what he was pursuing, in terms of the products he was making, but also the purpose in which he did it. So the question then is, is I think with this truth and beauty thing, is don't ask what Doug made, but ask what world Doug was trying to make. So for me, if I'm working with a company, you know, one of the things that I would ask him is, just, well, what world are you trying to create? Yeah, we've got this great technology and it's going to do this. And this. Okay, but what world are you trying to make? Well, uh, I'm really, well that, you really need to think about that because you're going to... And that's a poetic question, isn't it? That's a question a poet might have, right? Yeah, and I, and I think, uh, you know, if I, I'm comfortable with that. I mean, it, just to sort of step back a bit. So, uh, you know, when I, when I first left college, I was hired by the Anthony Doffe Gallery, which was at the time was a very famous contemporary art gallery. Um, and no expense was spared on the design and production of exhibition catalogues. I was working with you know, some amazing artists, um, Anselm Kiefer, some Cecil Collins, Bryce Marden, Gerhard Richter. I mean, it's, you know, the, these were really important painters and artists. Anyway. Um, the client that we were going to design a catalogue for was Cecil Collins, and he was, a, he was an old man and a very famous painter. Um, and they're quite small paintings he, he made. Nancy's sitting there with me. He says, now, Alan, says, I'm going to go away on holiday, um, which I was rather relieved about, to be honest with you, because uh, working with Anthony was a bit of a nightmare. Um, but he said, but Cecil's work, he says, I think... They're quite, they feel quite precious to me. So when you design this catalogue, do you think you could design it like a jewel? So I was 24 years of age, and I got back on the train, back to my studio, and I'm sitting on the train thinking, jewels, that's like, these are gifts. They're precious, they're priceless, they're unexpected, they give joy. They're, so I started to unpack this, this brief that Anthony gave me about being a jewel. And in a way, what he gave me was an incredible gift. Uh, because all of that thought went into every decision I made about that exhibition catalogue I was designing for Cecil. And at the exhibition, or the private view, uh, a few months down the line, Cecil comes up to me and he says, Are you Alan Moore? And I said, I am. He says... I'm Cecil Collins, and I said, well, it's a great honour to meet you, sir. Beautiful work. He said, you designed the exhibition catalogue, didn't you? And I said, I did. He said, I have to tell you, he said, in all my years, this is the most beautiful catalogue anyone has ever designed for me. Right? Now, that story is over 35 years old, 
and it still chokes me up when I think about it. Um, but actually about, I, I quested for truth and beauty in the poetic brief I was given to bring something to the world. And I, so I kind of think it's kind of nice to give people a poetic brief. Um, where would that take them? What parts of their ingenuity and their creativity um, and their passion and their purpose would they bring if they actually were given something of poetry to work on? And of course, there will be cynics in the room. Uh, there will be cynics listening to this. You know, but actually, all creativity, all great creativity, has to start from the places of optimism. You, this is another practice in the book. Yeah, that you absolutely believe that you're going to bring something into the world that's going to make the world a better place. Space, environment. So why not start with something which is optimistic? You know, why, why constrain yourselves? You know, and, and that kind of relates to, I think I was, I was saying that I'd met this architect called Alison Brooks. And um, I went to see her in her, in her studio and uh, she'd written this book called uh, From Ideals to Ideas. But in the conversation she said, uh, you know, you, your, your work has given me actually the inspiration and the courage to talk about beauty and architecture. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous when you hear it. Like, why wouldn't, they, why wouldn't those be connected? But they have become disconnected so, as we see around us. So postmodernism has done a great deal of damage to... Uh, uh, how we practice and how we make architecture. We can't talk about well-being in the way that we would like to. You know, we can't talk about legacy. And in a sense, actually, if you, you know, look at the great, uh, you know, Gothic um, station at St Pancras, which people for years tried to pull down, but actually is an extraordinary piece of architecture. It's an extraordinary piece of craftsmanship, an extraordinary piece of making. And when they designed and built that, there wasn't someone sitting there again, sort of, you know, ticking it off, sort of, you know, talking about... A five-year business case, right? Exactly. You know, so back to that idea about beauty actually carries a form of immortality in it. You know, it carries something which we may not be able to put our finger on, but actually brings something much more important and I think in terms of then the, the civic environment you know there's a really important role for people to commission um, you know either at a master planning level um, or within it's a sort of a, an architectural context you know things which actually are going to endure which are going to you know uplift our humanity I mean back to the optimism you know this idea that you know beautiful things are prepared with love you know, and infused with optimism, they say life is and can be worthwhile. Mm. And back to that idea of everything is designed, so it doesn't matter whether it's a spoon, you know, um, or you know whether it's uh, it's something much much bigger than that. Surely that's something that is wonderful to celebrate our humanity um, and living in the natural world. Um, which is which is which is filled, I think, with st stuff that is more joyful in many ways. So what, again, you know, I, I go back to the question: Is why would you want to make an ugly business? I mean, what, what, why would you want to do that? I mean, it just it beats me. Um, it, well, it beats you, but for others, it may be. Well, I want you know, I want money, I want power, 
I want to feel like I could yeah. dominate. Yeah. You know, I want yeah. market share. Yeah. Um, and it and it may well be that yes, and of course that that will never go away. And it's back to my you know my statement, which is, you know, you can't have Luke Skywalker without Darth Vader, right? I mean, you just can't. <laughs> right. But for me, it's a question of where you choose to stand. Yeah. You know, if you want to be, you know, if you if you find, you know, dominating people, you know, um, whether that's psychologically, sexually, uh, whether that's actually you need to feel that you're dominating huge groups of people, you know, and acting acts of cruelty or them makes you feel better as a human being, then, you know, that's entirely your choice. But I'm saying there's an alternative worldview, which and that is. Ultimately, you know, beauty gets more beauty, beauty gets more life, beauty enriches, and the ugly stuff is there for a while, but it can't endure. It's toxic, you know, it's the, it's, it's the, it's the pond that doesn't get the fresh water that runs into it. You know, it's the sea that's choked with, you know, pollutants and all the rest of it because it can't breathe. Um, and so in that sense, for me, beauty is then, you would say, it's oxygen, you know, and it breathes life into things. Um, and if we think very carefully and deeply about that, that could be applied to so many different ways of our, our life, living, working, whatever, you know, as uh, this phrase of, you know, better human, better leader, better maker. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I, I think of... I don't know. I'm sort of hesitant to say it, but I've done a lot of work on you know myself for the last ten or fifteen years, and I was a much bigger arsehole in the workplace <laughs> before that work than I like to think I am now. Right? I mean, others will be the judge of that ultimately. Mm -hmm. But you said something interesting in there. But you, you, it's Tachi um, um, Mannox, right? Tachi Mannox, yeah. Tachi Mannox. Uh, who's a calligrapher, right? And he talks about what he noticed was that his emotional state was was reflected in the calligraphy. Mm. And that says that's that reminded me of a, a guy who runs a Hanover insurance, um, Bill O'Brien, who talks about the success of any intervention is related to the internal condition of the intervener. That's right. Which is a similar idea. And so I think there's something to be said about um, when, when we think about, well, how how do I create a, business, a beautiful business? Well, one of the things to do is to look inward, right? One of the things is to do that work yeah and it sounds like bef before your breakdown you were behaving in ways that had an impact out there right is it yeah totally i mean i think that you um i mean i would i would <laughs> i was known for someone that could take on very complex projects uh bring diverse teams of people together which previously wouldn't have been you know assembled in that way and lead them um i'd like to think i wasn't a bad person but um you know, definitely, I was driven in a, in a in a very in a very different type of way, which ultimately wasn't sustainable for me. You know, um, and I agree with you. I mean, we you know we, we out of the book, the success of 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 the book, uh, and, I, and, it, and it takes me back to this idea of practice. So you know, because I've done so much making in my life, this thing about practice is very important to me. How do you practice? Because it's actually the only way you get better. Right. Um, and so I'm thinking about, could I design, could I bring together a group of people that could really deliver a, a learning program, an experience 
that would take, I think, about a year to take people on that journey. Because you don't, you don't solve the world in one workshop. You know that. I know that. You know, some workshops are better than others, but I just don't think you can do that. And to your point, absolutely, I think that if, also, if, we, if we take that idea of, um, you know, Gabriel's the total, what you take, what you make, and what you waste, and then apply that to actually, you know, better human, better leader, better maker, yes, you've got to go on that journey where um, it's your internal, you know, recomposition. Um, I mean, we will always carry a shadow land. This, you know, mm. I mean, that's that's the fact. But I think absolutely by really addressing and being aware of your internal landscape, psychology, makeup, understanding that actually there isn't only one narrative about your life and, and the way that you are in the world, that you can actually rethink those things. And of course, there's a lot of Buddhist thinking and Zen thinking around this, and that's that's kind of been partly my conduit, you know, in, into thinking about these things, actually allows you to lead and be in a completely different way. Um, and it's hard work. Um, but I think it's, it's important work and it's necessary work. And it's practice. It's practice something you do, you know, every, every day. Because I talk about in the book, actually, which is if you are at war with yourself... You know, for whatever reason that is, I mean, that could be childhood trauma, it could be something that's happened pre subsequently, or it could be a combination of those things. But reality is you're not a happy soul. Um, how can you lead well, really? Mm. You know, how are you making decisions if, if actually, the, you know, you've got such a massive conflict inside you? And I think you're able to make wiser decisions and choices and to lead more elegantly if actually you've done that work or you see that as part of an ongoing work and actually a part of that is you know what to put your hand out and go do you know what guys I really don't know what's going on here right now so what we need to do is we need to collectively come together and actually in the book I talk about in that sense Pixar you know creating the uh, brains trust which has also been written about quite a lot but you know Ed Catmull talking about the fact that it's actually the collect. It's the harnessing of the collective intelligence of all the people that are working on those Pixar films, which are the ones, which is the way in which actually they have been, on the whole, consistently able to produce, you know, highly grossing movies, um, and are prepared to spend three hundred million dollars on a movie and say, this is not good enough for release. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and so, God, that, that, that right there's a commitment to beauty. Yeah, it? exactly. So we 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 were only we're only gonna you know we're only gonna release ultimately films that we truly believe in. And the the story in Creativity Inc., which is the book that Ed Catmull book, uh, wrote, uh, it's a fascinating insight into actually the nurturing of creativity, in my mind, uh, in a way which is very unusual. Um, to do it at that level of scale and inverting again the hierarchies of power and control uh, that would traditionally dominate making a Hollywood movie you know so what is uh, what is called director's notes so the director you know he's got his he's got his hundred million or whatever it is uh, he's got the money you know he's got the cast together he's got all of that happening but actually what happens now is the movie 
production company, the bankers are actually now in control. So they'll see the script and they say, we don't like that script. You've got to do this. We've changed that script writer or we don't like that actor or this has got to happen. We want, to, we want this ending because we need the audience to leave happy. Um, and all of that is called director's notes. I mean, essentially, the notes are to the director as you will do as you're told. Yeah. That's why directors walk off of movies, uh, you know, citing creative differences, um, you know, because ultimately you're making something that you don't believe in. We're back to the start of our conversation about, you know, purpose, meaning, connection, creativity. Whereas at Pixar, uh, they turn it on their head, which is actually the director listens to all of the input, three I think very simple uh, rules, which is you can never be negative in your criticism. You can only offer constructive advice. Um, and the other rule is then for the director is he listens and he doesn't have to do anything that anyone says, but he will go away and reflect on all of that incredible input. Um, and that is an amazing way of actually running a creative business. But again, you know, as we know, I mean, you know, the failure of the NASA rocket where all those astronauts died that terrible death was actually through the explosion of the O-ring. Lots of people knew about it, but actually the pressure to get it up and not to delay and not to say meant actually people lost their lives um, as a consequence of that because you weren't back in that place of being open. Which is trust. a matter of your, you, of your practice. Yeah, you? openness is a, is a form. So, you know, open heart, um, open mind, open to new experiences, open to listen, but also cultures that are, that are open. And of course, there, there, there has to be rules around that. Uh, but they're very, very simple rules, you know, in the way that I've just described with, say, Pixar, for example. But there's a way where collaboration can be created where the foundation is built on trust and not on distrust. Um, and again, it means that I think people on that basis really feel that they're working towards something which is of a higher order purpose, um, is valuable and is useful. Um, and you're not working in, in a system or an environment which ultimately is, is damaging. And of course, ultimately, people will work towards their own best interests. So of course, when the culture change people come in, you know, the business isn't working, isn't working, you know, and all of these people have been hired to do certain types of jobs in certain types of ways. Um, but when people know that change is the true word here, if they don't trust that change, then they will do anything and everything they can, even probably subconsciously, to stop it happening you know, to subvert it um, for whatever reason. And again, that's a, that's a terrible shame. And I think that's a lot often if they can't find meaning. I mean, one, if they're, if they're threatened in some way in terms of the change, I think, but also if they, if they can't find meaning in it, you know, if they're not involved in the, in the creative process. Then. If they can't find meaning in it, um, but also fear in that sense, which is, will I lose my job? Will I lose the company car? Will I, you know, will I lose my power? Yeah. Um, and... And so actually the design of yeah, then organisations and cultures inside organisations is very important in terms of understanding all of that. Um, so the wise leader is the one that says, will this create more trust inside this organisation or will it actually erode it? 
um, will my best people leave um, because of this um, or, or won't they? And I think that that's, that's something very, very important to, to think about. So do you see a relationship between trust and beauty? Yeah. Yeah, so we talked about it earlier, um, uh, that you're, by questing for the truth, I think beauty is, is, is part of the framework of that. Um, so, what, so we talked about it, you know, uh, what's the truth in that product? What's the truth in that service? Um, but what's the truth in that culture? Or what's the beauty in that? You know, you, they, they flip backwards and forwards. Um, and we, uh, I made you laugh when I said, you know, you're sitting in the boardroom and the question was is, well, is that the most beautiful decision we can make? You know, and it's a real, it's a very counterintuitive question. But it's very powerful. Because in a way it's non-judgmental. Um, and it's not even moralistic. But it's got a lot of values in it. But how's that related to trust? Like, how do you see it related? Um, well, I actually think that uh, if you were talking about a beautiful workplace environment has got to be a trusted environment. There's got to be trust in, in the relationships between people. Um, whichever way you kind of, you know, you, you look at it. And in some respects, that's where this sort of, you know, th this recent trend, I think, for like flatter, more networked organisations is to do with trust rather than hierarchy, you know. Um, and of course, once people have got power, um, they don't like giving it up. You know, Fred Turner, who uh, ran Turner Media, he said, you know, a monopoly is not a bad thing, especially if you've got one. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, so if you're on the top of the pile, then you don't want to give it up. But the question is, is do the best decisions get made? Um, how rapidly does information run through the organisation um, that allow the best decisions to be made? And so, to me, that's where trust and beauty are, are those things. And it's, it's, again, it's not that you can't have difficult conversations, but as the Pixar example, you know, um, used, so back to, well, Ali's me, we, uh, the Pixar analogy is a great one, a story of, of me, we in practice, where actually, you know, trust is a fundamental component, design component, on how, you know, people are organising and working and, and discussing. And just very simple rules, which is, you know, you don't use bad words, you don't shout at people, you know, it's not negative. So how do we account for, say, Steve Jobs, or at least the apocryphal version of Steve Jobs, which he balls people out, and yet we might cite Apple as being one of the most beautiful businesses to Yeah, exist. and I think that um, uh, obviously it comes up time and time again, you know, in having these conversations, and there's, um, he definitely was an arsehole, um, there's no doubt about it, um, but actually on his deathbed, I think he recognised or realised that actually perhaps behaving in the way he did wasn't the best way that, you know, he could have done it, but that's the way he, he, he chose to do it. Um, so, it, you know, he was, he was Luke and Darth all in, one, all, in one, all in one body, really. I mean, I think that um, I, I still, I, I would say there could be the next Steve Jobs out there, but he doesn't have to be like that. 
you know, so could I, you make the case he he was he was successful in creating a beautiful business in spite of that? In spite of, I mean, I think that um, you know he uh, he he absolutely was an anomaly. He was an incredibly driven person, um, and in many respects, actually, Apple turning itself around was a lot to do with a him leaving, setting up um, next, getting onto the board of Pixar. He was the one that created the exit strategy for them. He went back to Apple as a billionaire. He took a dollar as his fee. And of course, Johnny Ive is a really big part of this story. And for me, I suppose, you know, and I write about Johnny in the book in terms of the relationship between craft and the being the master of materials, that it was actually the interface or interplay between Jobs and Johnny Ive that actually got Apple back on its feet and charted its fortunes. And if you know Johnny Ive's story, it's almost like genetically, you know, it was, it, it, it was it, you know, it was the prophecy that, you know, a Mr. Ive would end up in Silicon Valley and, you know, he would meet a Mr. Jobs and they would create history together. Um, because he absolutely, you know, changed, Johnny changed, um, with Steve's help, the company from being an engineering-led company, uh, in my terminology, that means it can't be done. Um, uh, to a design-led company, which is why can't we? And Johnny had a big role to play in that. Um, you know why? You know why can't the insides of the Apple computer be as beautiful as the ones outside? You know um, this whole idea about aesthetics and elegance and design, and even in the, you know the early days. You know when you I remember getting the first you know iPhone, and um, because I've been very heavily involved with mobile telephony and technology, um, you know, right from the mid-90s. Um, it was just extraordinary. The, a designer had realised that these, these things at the end of our hands called fingers are just incredible pieces of design. You know, they do so many incredible things. And someone had designed a device that was designed for the tactile capability to stroke and to circle and you know, just brought that that knowledge into human interface and interaction with the technology. And I thought it was absolutely genius. I mean, it was incredible, sensual experience. I think. Um, and so, yeah, you know, in that sense, um, I thank Steve Jobs because I've used apples all my life, and you know they are just incredibly. You know, well-designed, well-engineered um, products. As I say, I'd like to think that if the next Steve Jobs came along, he would say, "I could be like Steve, but I don't need to be quite like Steve was in terms of his interrelationships with other people." And it may well be that you know there are some very deep personality traits going on there, and I don't know the full story, but um, in terms of how he pushed himself. You know, almost too hard, you might say. Yeah, I mean, I think a... to achieve his success, you know. But and I wonder if it's if it's something about back to trust that it, it it's almost like one can tolerate a certain level of bad behaviour from someone if you trust that that person ultimately has. And I've certainly experienced this with bosses. If that if that person has some vision or some commitment to something bigger than all of us that, that I'm excited by. It's like, mm. all, it's not to excuse bad behaviour and it's not to say that I might not suffer to some degree from it, but I can think of bosses where I've been 
on a treadmill. I remember creating this huge sort of map of the systems for this big company that just just felt like it was just make work and nobody was going to ever use it. It just felt like overly complicated and, and sort of, yeah, it was just a sort of a whim of some bureaucrat that we were all engaged on. And, and, and the boss wasn't, you know, particularly inspiring to be around. And, and I really felt like I was on this, yeah, as I said to you before, and it was meaningless and yeah. I felt like my values were being trampled. But yeah, I was in another situation where equally this boss wasn't necessarily, it didn't have the greatest social skills and could snap and so on. But I really felt with him that he was committed to doing something bold and beautiful and bigger that was going to make an impact in that industry. And, I, and in the two situations, I felt very different. Mm. So, I, so that's, I wonder if there's also something about the context for I think, how that behaviour emerged. I, I think that's absolutely right. I do, I do agree with that. I think that um, yeah, I mean, there's no point working for an arsehole if actually, you know, what they're trying to do is equally evil in that sense, you know. And um, I mean, you know, that's where, for example, I think, you know, we, we, we talk about the sharing economy or the gig economy. And actually what breaks my heart is, you know, uh, people designing businesses where actually what they're doing is is really hurting human beings in the work that they're being asked to do. You know, the DPD driver that died because he was too scared to take time off work. Uh, because you know he's now technically self-employed, um, so he doesn't have health insurance. You know they won't give him sick pay. Um, he might lose his job, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, back to your point. Yeah. So if the leader is were moving towards a higher order ideal, but you know there's some, you know, whatever it is. Um, I still think though within within accepted norms. Um, Losing your temper, I don't know. Um, you know, nobody's perfect. I mean, I mean, I've got a maxim which is, no matter the provocation, it is never wise to respond in anger, and it's the hardest thing that you can do. You know, I know that. You know, there are certain buttons which get pushed, and it's very hard. Um, I still think it's true. You know, that's a, for me, a very important one. Um, uh, it's a personal lesson. Um, but yeah, so you're working with this guy or, or, or lady and they can be a bit tough and um, sometimes a bit impatient or... And then the question is, is, is it worth taking that if actually what we're going to do is really save human beings' lives or bring something into the world that really is going to put a... a you know, Actually, Steve Jobs turned you know an even bigger dent in the universe, um, and I've got no, essentially no problem with that under the, the the caveat which is within reasonable grounds. Um, you know, I think there's too many, uh, you know, <laughs> sociopathic uh, CEOs running companies um, because, in a way, that's what the system has bred for people to lead those types of businesses at the top. Do I want to work with them? No, not really. I want to work with purpose-driven companies. Um, I want to work with people that, that actually really want to, you know, make a, make a difference. And again, in a sense, that ask is, you know, uh, as I said before, you know, creating beauty is the hardest thing we can do. It's not easy. But then back to that idea of, so what does it mean to be a beautiful leader? 
you've got to be able to then really think about. Now that's an interesting. Uh, you know, how do I lead beautifully? You know, starting as we talked about, you know, your interior self, but then how do I lead beautifully? You know, there's things I need to achieve. I, I, know, I know that all of the, the, the people that I've met um, that have been really inspired me um, have a capability and a capacity to actually make their businesses run because I also believe that businesses are the answer to the problem that we face. You know, um, I don't think businesses are evil in that sense. Um, uh, I think that the challenges that we face will be solved by business, it won't be solved by politicians. Um, you know, they will need to create the necessary ecosystems, systems, platforms, whatever, actually to do good in this, in this world. Um, but I think that I would like to believe that someone will ask themselves then, well, um, I'm clear about my purpose, so how do I now lead beautifully? Right. It's the and. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's not yeah. either or. And again, mm. we've lived in this world which is, you know, it's really, people are really funny about this stuff. They somehow have to think it's either or. You know, and I've got a friend of mine called Rymo van der Klein. Uh, we were very old friends, and actually, we were at um, a, a retreat with Tashi, Tashi Mannix. Oh, you meant, yeah. And, uh, and Rymo and I were talking, and he said, you know, it's like, it's funny this either or, because I think it's and, and. Um, and, and I think that that's absolutely right. Uh, I will demand, you know, or we should demand uh, of ourselves that capacity to be the and and. Just because I'm a successful doesn't necessarily need, mean, need to mean I'm an arsehole. You know, so if you look at, say, uh, a business that's been going for a while called uh, Brunello Cuccinelli. Uh, Brunello, Italian, uh, high-end fashion uh, clothing, stuff in cashmere, um, but he's been going since 1974. And Brunello makes sure that his staff only work 40 hours a week. He has an oversubscribed craft school where he ensures that people come in to get trained to the necessary quality levels uh, that he needs to go and work in his, his factories. Um, he pays them uh, over and above uh, the going rate that is accepted norms in that industry and he gives 20% of his profits away for free every year because he says that's the gift. And he says, well, all I've tried to do is just try and run my business on a set of morals and ethics that are important to me. You know, so um, it's one example and he said, you know, the VCs aren't interested in us, but that's fine because we grow at 10% a year, so institutional pension funds are. And so Brunello is creating what I would call as a legacy-based business. And he's, he's creating beauty both in the products that he creates, but also within the workplace culture and environment that he works. And he can do that by being respectful and being dignified in the same way that I think Olaf or Eliasson as much as an artist, I think he's a leader. You know, he shows how to lead a staff of people and how you invest and how you nurture those people. Um, and we need more of that in this, in this world, I think. Yeah, reminds me of a, another guy who we interviewed, Jack. Um, 
who runs Propellinet. Um, and he, uh, he he had that question about VCs. Interesting, you mentioned VCs, and he rejected the VC money. And he's mm. like, well, why would I, you know, why would I take this money where I could? And he's gone and moved to the Alps. He's uh, he runs his he's a CEO out there. He sort of runs his businesses as a distance, and he he uses the business as a vehicle to do to do good in the world. Right. So he could have taken the VC money, sold his business off to. And I'm sure there are VCs who are committed to beauty and ethics and so on, but you know, to take the stereotype to to sell to sell his business to the, to the spreadsheet jockeys, right? He's he's rejected that, and he's using it as a as a, I consider that beautiful business. Yeah. Know, they 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 take the money back in. They help people fulfil their dreams inside and outside of the business. Um, they're very tuned into what people want want to do, and um, it's a it's extraordinary what he's. Yeah, you know, he's created as well, so I can see some of that business. So there, there are examples of the sort, of, and, and that's another example of and 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 that's a business that does is extremely healthy financially. Yeah. So that's what you know. That's what I think we can we can help people become aware of and and awaken to. There's actually we need better leaders. Uh, we need you know better better ways of teaching leadership um, that can bring a values based approach. To doing things, um, and of course, you know, you're a you're you know you're a young person. Um, you know, you've gone to university. You know, you want to go and do MBA because that's important to you. But actually, what you're doing is you're going down a path which is teaching you to behave in a certain type of way. You know, I used to play a lot of rugby. Um, there were some real thugs in that game. Some people seem to think that you know, punching someone off the ball or whatever is was sporting. I just thought actually decking the guy, you know, absolutely legally, because it's in the rules, was perfectly okay. You know, I didn't need to step out of my grounds of morality in terms of being able to play highly competitive sport when I wanted to. Um, and I think we've probably lost sight of that a little bit. And you know, when we were talking earlier about... Um, uh, this um, this worship of you know the unicorns, the companies that were valued at a billion dollars. Well, you know I'd say we need a company like Uber, but we don't need a company like Uber. <laughs> you know, uh, where are all sorts of problems around transportation that need to be solved. Um, absolutely, we do. But the idea that um, you know you're celebrating a company just because it's valued at a billion dollars is ridiculous to me. Um, because how have they got there? How have they made their money? Um, how have they treated their staff? You know, how have they treated their shareholders? How have they treated the planet? Um, all of those things are back to the and and, you know, back to the total. You know, this idea of taking, making, and wasting. Um, and it's my belief that what we will see is, is of course, because we are in a moment of profound transition in the world. Of course, you know, back to those that have the power, um, and you might even say at a macro level, that's like big manufacturers, that's big pharma, uh, fossil fuels. Um, uh, they're all investing in, you know, the hard men, in a sense, you know, um, because they're going to protect their vested interests. But there's, as I said, I think there's a whole other cohort which is coming on and saying, no, it's and and, you know. It's great products, great services, great businesses, 
but actually are restorative. So Interface is a really good example of that, which is the carpet tile manufacturer. Uh, Ray Anderson was actually one of the pioneers that said, he, and he was a Fortune 100 company, he said, I need to take this company sustainable by 2020. Because he was already listed, his, uh, you know, the pension funds and all the rest of it said, great, you can do that, but will it make us more money? Um, and he went, so, okay. Um, and he's done that, but in interviewing and talking to uh, Jeanne Van Arkel, who's the head of sustainable development at Interface, she said, we've now moved the mountain. We are going to be a fully restorative business by 2030. So every carpet tile we put down carries two kilograms of carbon carried in that tile. So we're taking carbon out of the out of the atmosphere. We're rechanging our supply lines. You know, we don't, we, and, and that's a massive commitment. So beauty is hard won, but the reality is it's enduring. And what it means is, it's a bit like when I, you know, Comrade Brits, who runs Falcon Coffees. Um, whose purpose is to build a more resilient and su uh, restorative supply chain for all of the people that grow coffee. So people listen to this show, just think about how easy it is for you to grab a cup of coffee. There's only 20 million people in the world that grow the entire world's coffee needs, but they all live in poverty. And Comrade says, I don't think that's okay. But when he hires people to come and work for his company, he says, I feel I'm the one that's being interviewed. And I'm being interviewed, which is, are you actually walking the walk? Is actually, is this greenwashing or do you really, because I want to know, because I'm not here for the salary. I'm here for the purpose. I'm here for the meaning and I'm here for making a difference. And if any of that is bullshit, then I'm going down the road to work for somebody that actually working for them means something. And I think actually for, for companies, that's something they really need to be awake to, that this generation, this younger generation, you know, the millennials in their 20s, mid-20s, late 20s, are kind of looking at this and going, why would I do that? You know, mm. you fucked up the planet. You know, you seem to make people very ill and very unhappy. Uh, and actually, you created an environment which is almost difficult, impossible for me to, to live in. So why, why would you want me to work by your rules? So... In that sense, you know, I'm, I'm, I am optimistic uh, that there is absolutely a different way in which we can, we can do these things. And yeah, it, and I think we're just seeing more and more examples of this, of where it's the, yeah, it's the, the, you can have this commitment to beauty, to humanity, and you can make money. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, the story of Vija, the trainers, is amazing. I mean, you know, two INSEAD-trained, you know, French uh, guys go to China to do a brand audit, business audit for a, a, obviously, a, well, I would presume it was a French manufacturing company, looked to the factory and then asked to see the conditions in which or where the workers worked and they were absolutely horrified at what they saw and they said, we have to do something about this. So their decision was, is what is the one iconic thing that our generation wears? Everybody is the trainer. So that's why they chose a trainer. They had no experience in manufacturing, design, business in that sense of, and they said, right, we're going to start the source of supply chain. And so they worked with indigenous tribes in the Amazon to say, would you be the source of our rubber? But in a restorative way. It took them two years to persuade them to do that. You know, you can now buy Vija trainers in uh, Selfridges, in, you know, high-end 
fashion stores around the world. Um, and um, I think it goes to prove that actually millennials want both the cool thing and the right thing. Um, and they've built that business over 10 years now to be an incredibly successful business. But they've looked at the design of every element and every aspect of their business in terms of how does it nurture, how is it restorative, you know, how does it make money, how do we make great trainers, how do we make stuff that people love. And they even said, we will not use traditional marketing and advertising because we see that as wasteful. So we just need to find a more ingenious way in which we get our products to market and make them, and make them work. So for me, they have a beautiful purpose, but they've used design in its proper term to actually be applied to everything that they do to make that a fabulous business, you know. Right, right. I'm also thinking for people who are listening now, um, so we've been through some of the practices in your book. We don't necessarily need to go through all 14. We've talked about being open. We've talked about um, being optimistic. Mm -hmm. um, We've talked about, um, what else have we talked about so far in terms of the practices? We talked about them being a master of materials. Master of materials. Uh, Is there anything, are there any one or two that you would also touch on to, for people to go away with? You know, imagine they're, in, they're not a CEO or they, you know, they're not an entrepreneur, but they're, they're working in a business somewhere. And they were, oh, we talked about attention to language, that was the other one. Mm. Is there anything practically that people can take out of this conversation in terms of to make their business more? Well, I think that... Um, anything else? I think time's a really big one. Um, you know, the time it takes to make something is the time it takes to make something beautiful, not the time you think it takes to make something. Um, you know, Zuckerberg's famous for, you know, move fast and break things. Yeah, well, um, uh, and actually it wasn't me that said it, but uh, a wonderful lady whose name escapes me now, but she said, no, move slow and build stuff. You know, so I think that time in that context is really important. You know, it's practice and time and practice and move towards your, your thing and also think about time in terms of then the legacy that you want to create. Um, I think in that... So that would practically, I'm just putting myself in the shoes of somebody, you know, but maybe got a manager. It, it, it's, it's asking, hey, you know, could we consider giving more time to this? Yeah to do it really well. Is it, yeah, absolutely. Is I, mean, I think in my experience of that, you know, in times and the fights we'd have with people where you go, you know, you, you'd look at something, you'd design it, you know, come up with a budget, and then they'd say, right, I want it in half the time and I want it done with, you know, 80% less of the budget. And you go, right. So what you're saying to me is, is you're prepared to waste that money now and you're then prepared to spend four times as much getting it right, you know, afterwards. Just do it right in the first place. You know, that's why, I don't know, music is a great example. I don't know why I got it in my head, but, you know, the great composers spent a lot of time getting those notes, those notes in the right order, you know, as, as opposed to Morecambe and Wise, you know, where he says, I'm playing the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order, right? And look what happens. So just, you know, for yourself, give your, and I think give yourself time, time for yourself. You know, this, the world is speeding up. Well, I think the world has always been speeding up. I was thinking about it, you know, once the world was flat, um, you know, and then it was round, and then there was this, and then it was that. And I can kind of, there are obviously periods where we look at it, but you, if you really sit back and think, like, the 60s were tumultuous, the 50s were tumultuous, 
Obviously, the forces were tumultuous because there was a world war. But, you know, and there's and all of that is interplayed. Humanity is in a constant state of chaos and stress and, 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 and distress, I think. And I think the question is, is to calm down, slow down and really see how you are in the world and really think about the decisions you're going to make and how you're going to make them and give yourself time to work on those. You know, my story in the book is, you know, the house that we used to live in, we had a really big garden and, and I, I literally built it from scratch with, you know, my, my stepfather. We were, a, we were a bit of an odd couple in many respects, actually. You know, and I was all gung-ho and get it done. And, you know, and he'd kind of look at me. He was a trained craftsman. Anyway, um, we had a 250-metre hedge, which was a beach hedge. And um, I'd saved it um, when we didn't have hose pipes long enough, carried you know, buckets and buckets of water you know, to, to feed them during the summer. But over the years, they grew, but there were big holes in the hedge. And I remember one day, Tony and I standing in the garden looking at these holes in the hedge and discussing what we were going to do. And I said, well, you know, obviously we just need to buy some more beach hedge, which is that height, you know, to fill them in. And he looked and he kind of rolled his eyes and he gave me what can only be called an old-fashioned look. And he looked at him and he said, no, it's the roots that you need to invest in, not the height. The quality of the roots are good enough, they'll catch up. And of course, sure enough, you know, 10 years later or whatever it was, it's a beautiful beach copper hedge you know and you would never know that there were any gaps in it at all and so that to me was a great lesson about time and quality of materials and making and really think about that you know what is that that thing that we really want to make that's really worth it and I think the Vija story kind of also relates to time you know we're just going to build this business in a way that makes sense and so you've got all of this kind of you know innovation this and accelerated that and it kind of all of a sudden you're kind of oh my god and we you know we've we've not done this because we're in quarter two and it's oh my god it's all gone wrong and actually don't do it that way that's not to say you don't put maybe pressure on yourself or whatever but this idea that you're you're a you know you're a hostage to time means that you're a hostage to making things in the wrong way for the wrong reasons is, right. my, is, my, is my lesson. Gib Bullock, a previous guest that I know yeah. met, talks about he wants to set up his on this Scottish island the decelerator. The decelerator. No, I loved it. I, I thought that well, what a great what a great term. Um, because the amazing thing is is that when you get great clarity about what it is you want to do, it happens really quickly. You know, I think about it from a creative perspective. Um, a lot of practice, a lot of thinking, working that goes into that moment where you make that decision. Um, and it can happen incredibly fast, but it happens fast because you have great clarity about what it is you want to achieve. You know. There's only 86,400 seconds in every day. Ever since we invented time, there's only 86,400 seconds in every day. So the world isn't speeding up because there's still only those number of seconds. It's our perception of time that's changing. And we can choose to respond to time. And it's a bit, you know, I've got a dog, um, 
Pipey and I, you know, we can, we can sometimes go for a walk and it's a three-hour walk. And some people say, well, how could you run a business and, you know, do a three-hour dog walk? Well, sometimes I just need to go and do a three-hour dog walk and then I come back and I write. Or I could be on the phone whilst I'm walking the dog or, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, I'm processing. We need that time for reflection and to, and to think about things. Um, I actually think that, you know, should all meetings be sat down around a table? Perhaps all meetings should be, we should be outside walking. I mean, how many people would look at you and say, what, really? So yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna have, it's an hour's meeting, so we're going to go for an hour's walk. Have a walk shop. We're going to have a walk shop. Yeah. You know, walk the talk. Yeah. Um, seriously, because I think that you're, 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 you're embodied in a really different type of way. And, you know, I brought people out here and, and they said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, we're going to go for a dog walk. And, well, you know, we we'll go for a couple of hours if you're up for it. And we'll talk and... You know, the first part of the talk starts with stuff, and I'll say how I'm feeling. So that's another thing: is to not ask people what they think, but how they feel. How do you feel? Um, it's interesting what people then reveal. So I think it's a more beautiful way of inviting people into a conversation. I'm fine if they're English. <laughs> and then you're lying. Um, and um, but by the end of the talk, we've got into a very different type of place. Um, and all sorts of you know decisions have been made and stuff has been talked over and looked at and it's a much much better way of of, of working I think actually in part or to accommodate that great I like it finally I'd like to ask this to a lot of my guests to you Alan what does it what does it mean to be human um I think to be human, um, it probably changes on a on a day to day basis. It's not a definitive one. I, I definitely think that to be human should be one where you live a life that, in part, does feel joyful, um, and I think brings meaning to you every day. I've got a friend of mine that says the best thing about waking up is waking up. Uh, and actually, in my darkest moments, I didn't quite understand the uh, the way that that worked. But I think to be human is to love. Um, you know, both love of yourself, love of other people. Um, and I think that's really hard. I mean, we can see that in the world at the moment. Um, you know, there's a lot of hate out there for other people. But the reality is, is that I think that to be human is, to really be human is to turn up with an open heart, full of compassion and full of empathy um, and understand that we are all the same. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much, Alan. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com dot com.